Hey, Whiskey Ringers, welcome to a brand new intro. First off, there are still a few bottles of our barrel single barrel rye finished in Armagnac casks, picked in partnership with This Is My Bourbon podcast. Check out the show notes for links to purchase. Second, I am thrilled to announce that I've joined the Bar Cart Co-op. This group of podcasts and shows has a show or multiple for everyone. I'll talk more about them in the mid-roll. Finally, there are still two $25 spots available on Patreon. These are the last two spots that will ever be open on that tier, so if you've been putting it off, grab your spot today. There are also spots available at the $15 a month level if you want to support, but can't quite commit to that $25 tier just yet. There's a spot in supporting for everyone's budget, and I truly thank you all for making this podcast possible. Hey, Whiskey Ringers. Welcome to a special episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we are on site at Long Island Spirits with with um, Rich Stabile. There we go. I was going to ask about the last name before <laughs> recording, which I usually do, but I didn't. So Rich Stabile, who is the uh, founder, head distiller at Long Island Spirits, Field and Sound Whiskey, um, Rough Rider Spirits, uh, Long Island Vodka. You, there's a lot to discover at this distillery. Um, but it being Long Island and me being a Long Island boy, I'm thrilled to be on site interviewing Rich. So Rich, welcome on. Oh, thank you for having me. Really uh, enjoy uh, being here with you and look forward to uh, chatting about our amazing uh, spirits. Awesome. So to start off, just set a little groundwork here. We're on the North Fourth of Long Island. So we're in kind of what most people think of as wine country now. A lot of wineries out here, um, about an hour, hour and a half east of New York City, and really just beautiful country, mostly farmland as well. Uh, and surprisingly, though, not many distilleries. So, and you're not e- not even a new distiller. You've been around since 2007. Correct. So I guess my first question is, you started in 2007 making mm-hmm. uh, potato vodka to start off. What was that mindset like to start a distillery in 2007? <laughs> That's a great, great, great question. Um, today, there's an amazing infrastructure to support craft distillery world. Uh, back then, um, we had a piggyback on uh, breweries and wineries, uh, dominantly wineries. And um, uh, what was very interesting for us getting started was... Um, you know, just all the uh, trial and error on everything and um, how we uh, got acclimated and started working with the farmers for potatoes. And then um, soon after opening, a lot of the wineries approached us and loved the fact that we'd be able to uh, distill some of their extra wine into brandy. So um, that became a, a nice revenue stream for us, doing some private label brandies, which uh, we continue to do to this day on a small scale, um, but really getting in touch, um, as you touched on, uh, out here on the east end of Long Island, um, it's kind of a hidden gem. Um, people, when I travel the country, aren't aware that uh, you know they have a mental picture of suburban sprawl for Long Island. Um, but it's very interesting when you hit... Um, an area called the Pine Barrens. Um, it's a 110,000-acre watershed preserve, so uh, the East End of Long Island has one of the purest water sources, ideally suited for making uh, spirits, especially whiskey. There's no iron content. Uh, the waters are sourced from the Mahogany Aquifer, and uh, we sit on the edge of um, that Pine, Ar- pine Barrens, the um, uh, eastern edge of the uh, Pine Barrens area. So it's really the, the start of the wine country and really um, 
just agricultural North Fork. Uh, it's a step back into the 1600s. A lot of these farmers still retain the names that um, date back that far. So uh, while we're one of the first legal distilleries uh, since Prohibition, uh, I, I bet you uh, farmers have been um, distilling uh, for quite some time back here with their XX grains. I bet. And uh, just to, to note, I know this history a little bit, but listeners may not, especially, especially if they're not from the area, which is, it's notable that you started with potato vodka. So uh, Long Island, like I said, the, the suburban sprawl is mainly around, I would, I would argue, Nassau County and Correct. eastern edge of, sorry, western edge of Suffolk County. But most of Suffolk County, center and east, is, like you said, farmland. Uh, and while we have wineries now, it was more potatoes. A hundred percent. So um, at one point uh, during World War II, there was about close to 100,000 acres of potatoes planted on Long Island. Um, in fact, right up the street where uh, there's a cidery there now, that used to be a wise potato chip factory, uh, which is kind of an interesting note. Um, well, they still grow... Uh, a significant amount of potatoes out here on the east end of Long Island, a couple thousand acres dedicated for growing potatoes, but they do rotate the crops. So the Long Island potato is pretty iconic, and um, we uh, wanted to take advantage of the using some of the uh, notable Long Island agricultural products when we started, and that was where Live Vodka came from. Uh, it's really an abbreviation for Long Island Vodka. and. Um, yeah, so that was really our first step into uh, the distilling world. We, um, yeah, we're very proud to still be producing that here, and we also do a uh, uh, its brother that's corn based. Uh, so we use local um, corn grain for making uh, uh, live, which is our standard edition. We also still make the potato version. And I'm just curious if you uh, if you know this offhand, when that switch just in the area started from potato to more vine and and even more suburban in the 70s um they you know potato you're not making a fortune growing potatoes but one of the great things about the east end of long island um and what's helped create preservation is uh the open spaces um provisions that Suffolk County was a national leader in that and preserving open spaces. So they keep the farmers farming. They will buy up their development rights, which is allow, allows them, uh, as long as they keep farming that land and not let it go back to, you know, woodlands or anything. That's what it's not the most economical place in the world to farm, but we're very happy to support our local farmers. Um, that started in the 70s. It's kind of... Uh, we, Every year, unfortunately, they continue to lose acreage of potatoes just because it's a lot more profitable to be growing uh, grapes. And uh, believe it or not, there's a lot of livestock out here. So there's a lot of cover, the cover crops are grown of uh, wheat, um, the winter wheat, winter rye, and of course, um, field corn for um, one of our other notable uh, livestock out here is uh, the Long Island duck. So they do grow a lot of field corn for that and feeding a lot of the livestock here. I do love my Long Island duck. It is, oh, yeah. it's one of those things I just always love. Uh, so Long Island Spirits is also, being in 2007, it's one of the earliest distilleries, especially of the new wave. So it's the, you were the 100th distillery That's correct. in the country. 
Um, and I imagine you must have been only maybe second or third in New York State at that point, too. Uh, correct. Uh, yep. We, uh, you know, the, the original, um, I, I remember going and meeting, um, you know, up in Albany uh, with the, uh, the other craft distillers. I think there was like four or five of us in the room, um, you know, back in like 2008 or 2009. And, uh, you know, my has how the industry has grown. Yeah, we're now New York State kind of goes back and forth to California for being first or second in terms of number of distilleries per state. Uh, so it, it's huge growth. I mean, I would think when you started, it was probably Tuttletown, because oh, yeah, I think they totally. were in 05. Yeah. Um, we actually started in 2000, you know, putting everything together in 2006. We um, started producing January 5th of 2007. Right. So just so, past the anniversary. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's been a, uh, a an amazing uh, industry to watch the growth happen um, from a, uh, you know, uh, where we were, Jesus, uh, 16, 17 years ago. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, I mean, talking back then, I would I wasn't even close to being able to drink alcohol at that point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, being the 100th distillery in the country, um, just in the single digits in New York State, if not, I'm, I'm going to look afterwards if I can find the number. I couldn't find it before the interview, but I was very curious about that, too. It's the first craft distillery on Long Island, too, since the 1800s. And um, you alluded to this a little bit before, but there was distilling on Long Island uh, before, you know, pre-prohibition, as there was in most places in the country, especially with a farming uh, presence. But Prohibition kind of knocked it out here, just like everywhere else. And uh, we had a fair amount of bootlegging, though, in the area. A hundred percent. I actually have a still from back then. One of the it's not put together or anything, but there is a, there was a gentleman who reached out to me and uh, asked me if he wanted to buy it. They made it out of a uh, milk, um, you know, the old milk. Uh, uh, containers. They had the five-gallon milk containers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so he had built that. I guess his grandfather had built it, and um, it, it's a very unique piece. So um, you know, we still have that around here. I, I, um, I'll, if I find it, I'll show it to you later. But it's yeah. it's pretty cool. Um, you know, it's got that uh, that patina. It's all copper, but um, you know, it, I'm sure if you fired it up, it were it would work. But uh, Pretty cool. Absolutely. So that was sitting in somebody's barn, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So when you uh, when you started, I promise we'll get to the products very soon. But sure, I, sure, sure. When you started with the potato vodka at first, how um, how long did it take you to transition and decide you want to make whiskey as well? We started making whiskeys uh, about a year, year and a half later. Um, so not too long, then, really. No, uh, you know, the vodka got us, um, helped us generate income, so did making brandy. And then um, we um, always wanted to make whiskey when we got started. That's why we selected the stills we did. Um, so um, that had always been within the plan. Mm-hmm. And we started laying down uh, Rough Rider. And uh, we had a very interesting joint venture with uh, Blue Point Brewing. Um, Back in 2009, um, Mark Burford reached out to me and said, who was a good friend, um, he uh, had some 
um, barley wine that uh, he had made a double batch of, um, asked if uh, we were interested in distilling it and making it a single malt. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were really at the forefront of making single American single malt. So we laid that down uh, back in 2009 as well, um, and about a year and a half released uh, Pine Barrens. Uh, because Blue Point Brewing sat at the other end of uh, the Pine Barrens mm-hmm. in the su- southwestern corner of the Pine Barrens area in Patchogue. And um, we were, uh, that partnership lasted until they got acquired by Anheuser-Busch. So we actually now brew beer in-house just to distill it. And that's kind of, you know, was the genesis of uh, Pine Barrens. And it's notable that the, the beer you're distilling, or sorry, the beer you're brewing rather is drinkable it's bottle ready beer it's bottle ready beer yeah which as we talked about on the podcast before it's that's not always the case with distillers beer (laughs) sometimes god awful yeah um with with the expansion um into whiskey as you said building off of the breweries that were in the area blue point and then later partners as well when you were moving into the whiskey who did you kind of look to to say hey we want to make some whiskey here but I mean, there's nobody here in Long Island. Um, it's not many in New York State at that time. So, um, but yeah. you seem to get good advice from somewhere. Where where do you look to? Right, right, right. So, um, I'll be honest with you. We a lot of it was trial and error. Uh, so we focus uh, a lot on our fermentation. Uh, one of the things that we wanted to do different to set ourselves apart was um, uh, let's start out with the bourbon. Um, we do. Uh, all our whiskeys are sweet fermentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tried uh, several different, um, so basically from the start. So uh, we do with sweet fermentation. Uh, we tried several different yeast strains, settled on um, using Fermentus US uh, 6W, which really gave us the best results. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, uh, doing our very tight heads, hearts and tails cuts. So, um, you know, pretty much just keeping about 60% of the spirit. Um, also, our barrel entry proof is 125. Um, other distilleries played around doing lower um, barrel entry proofs. Um, and the other thing is we wanted to take advantage of the grains out here um, and also um, our experience in brandy. So Rough Rider originally, um, and s- still to this day, um, is um, a mash bill of 60% corn, th- 33% rye, 7% malted barley. Uh, then we do an extra maturation with that to uh, round out the flavor profile in X brandy cast. So that kind of just gives it some nuanced touch to it. Um, our rye, uh, 93% rye, 7% malted barley. Rye um, is very terroir sensitive. Uh, the rye that are grown on Long Island are going to be different than the rye grown upstate or Midwest or Rhode Island or Maryland for that matter. Um, so just because we're surrounded by a lot of the wineries here, the rye tend to have a bit of a sweetness to them. Um, 
And our bull moose rye, uh, we wanted to do something a little different there, so we did an extra barrel maturation. And then our big stick rye, uh, we just like to let that shine through at 121 proof and uh, have that sort of develop its, uh, you know, people who like cast strength. There's really not that many cast strength ryes out there. So I think that became a showcase. So back to your original question, um, it was a lot of trial and error. Um, and um, that's the beauty of uh, not doing gigantic batches of things. You can uh, you get a sense of what uh, things are going to uh, mature like when you're trying the actual raw distillate uh, prior to going into the barrel. And um, you know we were very very happy with a lot of the results we have. And uh, you know we even settled into uh, establishing using Kelvin uh, Cooper's um, char two in all our whiskeys expressions. Yeah, the Kelvin Char 2 was something that stood out to me for, uh, I mean, a couple of reasons. One, usually, it's, you know, generalizing for the industry, you're looking at a three or a four char, sometimes three and a half. Um, some of the heavy chars, you go five, where the barrel's almost falling apart. But the um, Char 2, there's another distillery that we've, we've talked to a couple of times, Spirits of French Lick, who also uses Kelvin number two chars. And their reasoning, at least, I'm curious if it's the same as yours, is that you still get the char, you still get the toasting that you would get from a barrel, but because there's less filtration, there's less heaviness to the char, you let the grain shine through a lot more. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Our distillates are fantastic because we do a sweet fermentation. Uh, we like to do a lot of the work up front and not rely on the barrel to produce as much flavor and have that that uh, the grain grains really... Um, take note within the, you know, during the uh, aging process. So I think that's, uh, that's well put by them. And I, I probably, you would have probably gotten a very similar response to me. Yeah, and it, it fits too with, um, with the timelines you were saying. I mean, we're overall in the, in this episode, we're going to talk more about the field and sound line, which is kind of the, the, not the necessarily the newest expression, but the newest line extension and um, really how you're getting more into more markets and getting right. across the country. Uh, and, but the, you mentioned that the Pine Barrens American single malt that you originally put out was a year, year and a half to two years old at, uh, right. when it first went out. And at even a year or two years, you're not going to get a ton from the barrel like you would at four, six, eight years old. So you have to have a lot of flavor in the grain. 100%. Otherwise you're just going to kind of have meh distillate in a, and not a barrel for too long. Exactly, exactly, one hundred percent. So um, that you know, that's that was the essence of uh, Pine Barrens, uh, which was um, if you'd like to lead into and start talking about field and sound, mm-hmm. um, you know, Rough Rider and Pine Barrens were kind of the building blocks for this new line we came out with, field and sound. Uh, the name comes from uh, the field we back up to. Uh, which is about close to 100 acres of um, uh, farmland that uh, uh, we grow. There's corn grown back there, potatoes, um, and winter rye is resting there right now. Then there's a tree line, and then uh, you have the Long Island Sound, the bluffs of the Long Island Sound there. And that's really, we wanted to really speak to the terroir of Long Island uh, for each one of these expressions. And... Um, you know the, uh, the the fact that we back up to, we are so, in such close proximity to the Long Island Sound 
uh, you'll also get some salinity in the whiskeys. Uh, a very slight hint, but it is no, it is there. And, um, you know, that comes from the, uh, the ice cold winter uh, breezes that uh, shoot off the Long Island Sound. I mean, we have a deck uh, off our tasting room here. It's, uh, sometimes it's like being on the... Um, uh, on board a ship because you can actually feel some of the sea spray coming off there. I bet. It's, um, and I should note, you know, the day we're recording today, it's, uh, it's a pretty chilly day. We're in the 20s <laughs> and teens right now. Yeah. It's blustery, windy, um, but it's also, it's nice being out and, and it's bright sunny. So it's a typical winter day out on the, uh, on the east end, as we like to say. And with the sound being there and the salinity note, you mentioned on, on the website and, and as you said here as well that the having a salinity or maritime note in whiskeys is more associated with Scotland and especially Isla and places on the coast. So because that's just you know what you get. You get the winds coming off the west coast and you get that in there. In American whiskeys though, it's pretty rare to be to be talking about that. I mean the the only distillery that I can think of that I've spoken to in that or visited and, and that has made that a point has been ironclad mm. in, in Virginia. And for the, so for the most part, it's a very kind of unusual flavor. If you're not right. ready for it, as subtle as it may be, especially if you're not a Scotch drinker, if you're just drinking American whiskey, you're not going to necessarily know it, notice it at first, uh, or you might not like it <laughs> or you may love it, right? but it's definitely going to be something different right. to your point. It's going to have a little terroir of where we are, and how do you, you know, we're, we're also a couple feet from your tasting room. So I'm curious when someone comes in and they kind of taste that salinity or you're preparing them to taste that mm-hmm. note in there. Um, how do you explain it to them in a way that makes it be like, no, we, we want it to be in there and it's supposed to elevate the whiskey? Well, I mean, the market speaks to itself. I mean, these are maritime whiskeys, uh, men's journal rated um our straight bourbon whiskey, one of the top 10 whiskeys in the world. Um, and we're quite proud of that. Um, when we let the, um, uh, you know, the way we talk about it, it's it's not as upfront, the um, the salinity. But when you mention it, then that they look for it mm-hmm. and then they discover it. So it's a, you know, whiskey, as you know, is a journey. And uh, when you your first taste, uh, your second taste is going to be a lot different than your first taste. Your third taste is going to be a lot different than your second taste. So it evolves on the palate, and um, you know uh, it. It's it's just wonderful to when we're talking to uh, whiskey enthusiasts uh, when they they try it, um, and then they let it. They take a second try and a third try. Let it open up, and the aromatics and. Um, splash of water they just really enjoy that subtleness and it's really something that um uh we've seen a lot of delight in our whiskey lovers here awesome all right so jumping into the expressions themselves we're going to be trying a bunch of the field and sound uh, expressions which is now your main major line of whiskeys uh we do want to just you know mention that you still do carry the Rough Rider, the Bull Moose, and if those terms sound familiar to you, uh, listeners, might be associated with Teddy Roosevelt, who on Long Island we are quite proud of having Teddy around uh, at at the uh, Sagamore site, and 
many other places around the area. So with Field and Sound, we're starting off with Bottle and Bond Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Correct. So cheers. Cheers. Very nice. This being my first drink of the day, it's a little hotter than usual, but that's yeah, first drink of the day. Um, we were talking about as we walked through the production facility in Barrel House that Rich and I both like cast strength or higher strength stuff. But this is the first one of the day, like you said, still catches you off guard sometimes. With the so with the feel and sound, bottled and bomb, straight bourbon whiskey, obviously we're talking four years old minimum. Yep. Uh, same sweet mash process, the 60337 mash bill. So that's also something I want to pick out because that's an unusual mash bill. Right. Uh, had you, was that also just trial and error, figuring out what worked best with the grains you had? Yeah. Uh, you know, as I said, you know, we varied. Um, we were down to as much as 5%, um, and we've been as much as 10% on the malted barley. We just found a happy medium at 7 um, and it, it just works for us. Um, you know, the size of our fermenters or, you know, size of our mash ton, uh, it just, the whole, um, you know, as I said, you know, er- everything is a lot of trial and error and we made a hell of a lot of mistakes in the beginning. And, uh, you know, after 17 years, I kind of think we have it figured out. It seems so. And, uh, I would give yourself credit even sooner than that, because these are already four plus years old. So it's several yeah. years before that where you've locked in the flavor you locked in the mash bills yeah. you want to get so with the bourbon as you said it's finished in uh previously used french oak, ca- oak casks excuse me that held anything from pinot noir to uh chardonnay grapes merlot grapes brandy that you've some that you've well actually i'll ask you um, is it some wine some brandy all brandy cask so uh well obviously the the feel and sound is just kelvin char two that's you know uh for for this one um but i i think um i might be better off to when we get to uh our rum cask and brandy cask Mm uh you know to delve into our extra maturations yeah absolutely um but you know for this one um you know we, we've gotten uh, some great accolades with it you know as i said from men's journal and um you know vine pear and some other i mean um you know can't say it enough how uh, proud we are of uh, uh of this new whiskey line when you're so so this was actually just released in 2000 22 uh, 2021 December of 2021 uh, so this is really um, we're up to batch three now very nice so the reason for the for my um, misstatement earlier that it was finished in the other barrels I was thinking about the rough rider ah yes yes, yes yes so that was what was happening so um, as there are, is a question issue I want to ask about that that's still kind of relevant as we're going to the um, brandy cast, which was because we have a lot of wineries out here, do you have consistent partners that you work with year over year? Or yes. 
Right. Do you also kind of rotate in as as things are either available or depending on harvest and crops? Uh, we only work. We we prefer to just work with a couple. Um, we've um, done Sparkling Point. Uh, that's pri- primarily the the one we've worked with. We've done worked with some other wineries, but the the one that uh, we've been working with since like 2012, um, 2010, I think. Um, has been sparkling point consistently. Uh, we did some stuff with Peconic Bay way back in the day, um, in like 2008. Uh, we did a um, uh, an unaged brandy spirit that um, uh, was interesting. It, it was uh, Sono Renata. We also learned which grapes give you really nice brandies, which aren't so great. Uh, we've experimented with Merlot, which is something we um, don't care for. So we primarily focus on Pinot Noir and uh, Chardonnay grapes. So Sparkling Point's really the ideal partner because they do a lot of sparkling wines and produce a lot of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And do you still, are they also the only ones or one of the few who you partner with to do brandy production? Like, do they use you for brandy production and do other places as well still? Yeah, we, we, we uh, just did a release for Sparkling Point uh, a couple of months ago. Um, you know, we probably have about 15 of their barrels, um, and uh, we'll make uh, um, brand, two brandy releases. Uh, Gilles Martin, uh, who is one of the acclaimed um, wine producers out here, come and uh, batch out what he thinks. He'll pick some from each barrel. Uh, you know, we've got barrels that close to 10 years old out there. And, um, you know, they make fantastic brandies. And I should say you have um, not only the brandy barrels that are that old, you also have some whiskey barrels. Yeah, or whiskey, whiskey. I should say whiskey distillate, distillate at that point. Cause, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, you have some whiskeys in there that are that old as well. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we had did a very, very um, small release um uh, of the Rough Rider called the Old Lion, which was our eight-year-old age statement whiskey. Um, You know, and, you know, whenever we produce um, our main lines, we like to hold back a couple of barrels. Um, You know, we're not a giant distillery, so we're never ever going to, well, I should never say never ever, Uh, but, you know, we're not going to have these, you know, um, huge releases of very old whiskeys, but we do keep, uh, small expressions of uh, you know very well aged whiskeys and I was yeah. lucky enough when I first came to visit Long Island Spirits I got a bottle of the Old Lion yes and I meant to bring it with me today and I left it on my living room table unfortunately but it was really excellent stuff 8 year old bourbon and said um, I'll put up my, uh, my tasting notes and such and some information about it around the release of this episode yeah, so the old that was a single bottle, single cask at 126 proof. It was, it didn't drink at 126 proof. I mean, I'm right. I'm trying to remember my nose off the top of my head, but I remember that it drank closer to about like a 105, 110, right. um, in a good way. Like it was still very yeah. full bodied. Um, even after eight years in the cask, it still showed the original grain in a great way. Right. Yeah. I can I can handle it well, but I still got to drive home. Yeah, so. well is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
it'll warm up the days. Yeah. As we're uh, pouring here, we've got some of the new, the bottled and bond straight weeded bourbon whiskey, which, again, cheers. Cheers. Got a nice, the nice caramel note you get from more weeded bourbons, but still full bodied, a lot of spice, and it's more. I was almost has a little coffee note in there too. Coffee, you get a little bakery notes. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah like, a, like a caramel latte from a uh, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. It's really nice. I like that. So the, the weeded bourbon has not always been in your portfolio. No. No. We started making weeded bourbons about, I think, 2017. So um, the um, we just. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, winter. At the time, um, there wasn't a lot of winter rye, so we're like, oh, you know, why don't we try making a a, um, a weeded bourbon? And um, uh, there is an abundance of wheat grown out here. Um, the uh, um, it's grown for the same purposes as, uh, but it's harvested um, in June, so uh, you know. The Barkhart Co-op is a group of five shows with something for everyone. First up is My Whiskey Den, hosted by Mike Lisak, Pat Bologna, and Mitch Weddle. Listen and watch live on Mondays at 9 for thoughts and discussions on craft spirits and, once in a while, some downright odd things. And yes, I'm talking about the cantaloupe liqueur that I can't believe could be good, yet I gotta admit, it's fantastic. Next up is Bourbon Turntable, hosted by Kevin Rose and Drew Crawley. Kevin and Drew are true lovers of both music and bourbon, and I got to join them to talk about my own whiskey and music journey back in March. It's still one of my favorite episodes I've ever been a part of, and it's a show that I listen to every single week. The next two are from a guy you may have heard of. After all, he's a two-time guest on the Whiskey Ring podcast. Mr. Alan Bishop, head alchemist at Spirits of French Lick and self-proclaimed reviver of the history of Indiana's Black Forest. Alan has two shows in the co-op both of which are also weekly listens for me. The first one is Distiller's Talk with co-host Christy Atkinson. It's probably the nerdiest spirits podcast I know of, and that's including my own, and I absolutely love it. Some weeks you'll be talking capturing wild yeast in long-gone ghost distilleries in the Black Forest region. Others you'll be hearing from some of the most exciting up-and-comers in the distilling, brewing, and overall spirits-producing industry. Most of these distilleries he's gone, I've never even heard of before the episode, but after listening... All I want to do is find out more and explore new ways of looking at spirits and all the nerdy stuff that I love about this industry. And last but certainly not least is Alan's other podcast, If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Exploring the paranormal side of Hoosier-occupied Kentucky, Alan intertwines his own experiences with stories about neighbors, colleagues, and local legends, and why you should never go into the forest alone at night. Part scary story part homage to the rich history of Southern Indiana, this show comes straight from Alan's heart and soul. Take a listen or watch to any of these amazing shows, and thank you to the Barcar Co-op community for welcoming me. Join the community on Facebook, follow on Instagram and YouTube, and you'll have another show for every day of the week. That We typically work with uh, the farmers to 
do our rise in the uh, June, July, August time frame. I mean, our weeded bourbons in that time frame. Um, even though wheat's available year-round, uh, it typically is all gone by September, so we try and purchase and do our production of the weeded then. So, uh, yeah, like June of 2017 is when we started laying down our first weeded bourbons, and, um, you know, we were just blown away with the distillate. And as I said, you know, the, the barrels uh, did their work, and, um, you know, these are, you know, they, they we're very proud of these. And with the uh, weeded mash bill are you swapping out the wheat for the rye it's a yeah it's a direct swap so it's a very high wheat i mean if you look at other weeded bourbons out there um i mean there's not a ton and there's certainly not a ton of wheat uh bottled and bond weeded bourbons but um the, the fact that we're able to um you know get that flavor profile um yeah that uh starts out with that beautiful distillate um I think it's a result of um, you know the combination of our sweet mash fermentation and um, you know using the uh, the Christian Coral stills, which are uh, really allow you to do um, micromanage the whole distillation process. Um, you know, uh, taking our deep uh, cuts rather than relying on the uh, the column to do all the work. Um, we're very uh, plugged into every you know every drop of the whiskey that comes out. And was the introduction of a weeded bourbon, I mean, of course, like you said, there's, you've got wheat around, so it makes sense, as, just as you're doing with the rye and with the corn, and potatoes for that matter. But was there also, um, I'm just curious, any kind of uh, market pressure from, from the local market, from customers coming in and saying, hey, do you have a weeded? Because obviously, the reason I'm asking in this time frame is 15, 16, 17 is when, you know, the when people started discovering kind of the pappies and the wellers and all of that. So the popularity of weeded bourbons went up quite a bit in that time frame. So I'm curious if there was market interference as well. Well, it goes without saying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, one of the fortunate things I've, uh, I've been a board member of the Long Island Farm Bureau, which is uh, part of the New York State Farm Bureau, um, since, uh, 2008, 2009. So, um, yeah, I'm keenly aware of uh, the agricultural uh, availabilities out here. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, I, I look to support the farmers uh, in any way I can. And, um, uh, you know, certainly having a wheat, wheated bourbon in our portfolio has been uh, a feather in our cap, I think. I bet. I mean, it's, it's a very good wheated bourbon. It's a great wheated bourbon, I would even say. And I know I'm a little bit biased because everything tastes better, number one, on the distillery. When you're at a distillery, everything tastes better. <laughs> even <laughs> even some of the worst distillate I've found can taste really good if it's off the still kind of thing. But I really do believe, like, if I'm giving this, if I were giving this kind of independent review, that it would still rate favorably as something that has a lot of flavor, a lot of caramel, without being uh, to one note, which I find a lot of either weeded bourbon or wheat whiskeys. They can really lean into that caramel note to a point right. where it's just like you feel like you just sucked on a Werther's candy, right. and that flavor still kind of in your mouth. But no, the with the coffee flavors, with the addition of a little bit of the kind of raw grain in a good way that's still there. For me, this would stand out against a couple of the other ones, and it seems like it has yeah. uh, as as it's reaching the market and. With that, uh, before we go to the next one, I wanted to just jump back to your production for a yes. second. 
so as I said, we just did a, a tour of the production facility. I got to see uh, the fermentation, the um, beer. Words just went out of my head. I'm sorry. Um, the beer vats, the stills themselves. Right. And uh, as you mentioned, Christian Carl stills, uh, two identical ones, 650 liters Correct. each. Uh, as you, you know, I took a picture of them, so you can see this as we release the episode. But they're um, steam jacket, copper, uh, five plates on the pot still. And then for other production, like the vodka, there are also column stills that can be attached or detached, depending on the piping. With the Christian Carl stills, you mentioned earlier how versatile they are. And uh, as I mentioned to you when we were touring, the Carl stills in particular seem to have caught on, particularly in craft distillers, because there's so much you can do with them on a very short notice. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of just other, I mean, just other ones in, in the area, like Stout Ridge has Carl's. Uh, there are a bunch of, I mean, just more and more craft distillers I talk to have Carl stills instead of the big guys like Vendome, Forsyth's, thing like that. And I think that speaks to the benefits of those stills. So um, were the stills that uh, you have now the original stills that you... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you've had those from the beginning. Yeah. They, uh, the, uh, one of the owners, Alex, when we can't, you know... Uh, you know, we're housed in a barn that um, supposed and beam dual cupola barn that was built in 1910. So we, we had to work within the framework of the architecture here. And these stills um, were custom made to fit in the area uh, on the main level. And we had to cut out some flooring to for the um, columns to come out, through for the vodka portion of the stills. Um, but, um, yeah, the, uh, those are the original stills. They get better with age. Um, and, uh, I think that really contributes a lot to the flavor profile too. I mean, they, they, I mean, they shine up obviously if you, you polish them, but we like the patina on the outside just, uh, cause they look cool. Yeah. It's got a little lived in <laughs> look to it. That's so it. You know, they've been used. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wor- worst thing you can have is, you know, you're five years into distilling and you've got a perfectly clean still. That's it's, right. it's, oh, what have you been doing on there? Right. At least on the outside, the inside with, because you're doing the, the sweet mashing and such, I know you've got to have an extra level of cleanliness. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, uh, as it happens, we just interviewed, Peerless Distilling in Kentucky, also doing a sweet mash. So we've had a couple of sweet mash distillers on here, and we know the uh, the sanitation requirements are a lot higher here. So with the um, production as well, before we even get the sweet mash, uh, with the fermentation. So you're doing uh, fermentation using the strain before, also champagne yeast and, uh, and a brewer's yeast. Yes. So... You mean exceptionally long fermentation with these? So um, for our rise, we use a champagne yeast. It's typically mm-hmm. about 10 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, our whiskey distillation will be 6 to 10 days. And then our single malt whiskeys, we actually use a brewer's yeast, and that's about a three-week fermentation. We don't make a ton of our American single malts. So, I mean, we love them, but uh, they're very costly to make, and we do them for one month. So... We'll lay down maybe 15, 20 barrels a year, and that's it. Um, we're not making a ton of American single malt, but what we make is just fantastic. Um, the uh, you know just uh, we work within our framework of what we think um, is 
working mostly in the market for us has been bourbon lately. So, you know, we're making a lot more bourbon and our weeded bourbons, and uh, we still make a ton of rye as well. And um, But our single malt, we're always, uh, you know, we pick a, a month typically in September time frame, and uh, that's when we do our uh, American single malts. I mean, just thinking about the, the fermentation times, normal kind of whiskey fermentation, we're looking maybe three to five days, something like that. With a sour mash. With a sour mash, right. right. Um, sweet mash, you can go a little bit longer. Right. Because um, you don't have, you know, you got to get started with that. You're not getting started with the with the back set. But even so, I mean, six to ten days for the whiskey, the rye, ten days, the Singamaw, three weeks is um, almost, I would say, rum levels of, of fermentation length. Yeah. So, you know, one of the th- uh, beauties of our fermentation tanks, we use Prospero, and they're all um, temperature control. We have glycol chillers. Uh, so we maintain uh, precision temperature for each one of the fermentations. So they all vary from uh, if we're doing uh, uh, the single malt, that's a 70-degree fermentation. Uh, well, while, you know, whiskey's probably 80 to 85, and then... Uh, we're up to about 95 for our vodka. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there's a whole variable um, doing the uh, the champagne yeast. That's about a 75 to 80 degree fermentation. It's a low, slow fermentation, but it reveals a lot of the, the grain notes. And, um, that, you know, those kind of shine through. You know, with rye, uh, which we're going to uh, jump into next, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the farmers refer to Winter rye is a cleansing grain. Uh, that being said, it um, is deep rooted, so it, as I, it picks up a lot of the terroir notes mm-hmm. of the area. Um, while it's picking up the terroir notes of the area, being surrounded by all these wineries, our rye tend to have a little bit of a sweet profile. Mm-hmm. Um, this is our bottled and bond um, field and sound rye, and uh, cheers. Cheers. Definitely a sweeter note, which is, if you were just looking at the mash bill, independent of anything else, you'd think 93% winter rye, 7% malted barley, it, you would expect a ton of spice, a ton of spice, a ton of the herbaceousness, black pepper, but in profile, I would say it's almost closer to a, um, not quite a, not quite a Maryland style, like the barely eagle rye, but maybe something closer to like a 60, 65% rye, where you know it's a rye. It's not so sweet that it's a bourbon, or it tastes like a bourbon, but the rye grain still comes through so nicely. Oh yeah. With when you were um, adding the rye to your portfolio, because you had the rye around, did you kind of expect that profile to come up, or was that a, a, a was welcome a, surprise? It was a welcome surprise. We, um, you know, we tasted it on the distillate, uh, you know, because when. We were starting out, we visited a million different distilleries, and we always wanted to do something different. And, you know, uh, going back to, um, you know, being, uh, starting out in 2007, you know, we didn't take the vision of wanting to try and compete with Kentucky distilleries. We never could. So we wanted to carve out a niche for us, and that was really focusing on uh, producing things from local terroir and how do you amplify... um, those grain notes and that's really through sweet fermentation and using uh, a lower barrel char so 
that's really why our whiskeys are not going to ever taste like somebody else's whiskeys. Ours are very distinctive. They are, and it's it's welcome, I think. Yeah. With the with the rye, I'm still I'm, in my mind. I want to ask the next question, but I'm still stuck on those fermentations because the the length of the fermentation and the temperature control. Uh, again, it's we haven't I haven't really seen it before. So with the with the rye using the um, champagne yeast, I don't even know which question to ask first. Let's start with with using the champagne yeast. Uh, did you look at basically wineries using champagne yeast? And no. Well, well <laughs> so Gilles, going back to our experience with the brandy, yeah. Um, so Gilles suggested we try that. So you know, we talked to. Uh, because we were again at the you know we made a lot of mistakes but we made a lot of uh, we stumbled on a lot of cool things during those mistakes Um, and one of them was uh, in discussions we probably would have never done this if we weren't making uh, brandy for some of the wineries he suggested hey why don't you try fermenting using champagne yeast grains and um, it was just a very happy discovery and um, you know we we really liked the results from that and the, I'm just fascinated. I want to look into the science a little more on this with the longer fermentation and the lower temperature. Because normally, we say three to five is a general rule because people are using distiller's yeast. Let's call it the, the most generalized profile. You have distiller's yeast, three to five, maybe 100 degrees fermentation, still temperature controlled, but letting it be a higher temperature so it'll work faster. Right. Um, yeah, because you're just trying to generate ethanol. Exactly. You want yield over, not necessarily yield over quantity, but or quality rather, but sometimes yield over quality. Right. Uh, but the long fermentation, you're getting more, towards the end of a normal fermentation, you'd start getting more of the fruity esters coming out, particularly if you go into the day six, day seven. But even at that time, the percentage of alcohol or ethanol in the solution, in the mash, is getting high enough to start killing off the yeast. So is the lower temperature... Um, controlling it to such an extent that the yeast are able to survive either in a higher alcohol environment or just there's less alcohol being produced as fast so the yeast can live longer so it's less out well it's the same amount of alcohol but um doing depending on which strain we're using it allows um as long as you're controlling the temperature that is their sweet spot in um uh, their longevity of the yeast. Um, so, you know, the, the, each one, each yeast strain has their own parameters. And at, if we're propagating from sweet fermentation, um, allows us really to have much tighter control during the whole process. Um, these are closed top fermenters. They, uh, as, you know, in discussions we had talked about the amount of uh, cleanliness, and that's also uh, going back to not just being you know, uh, when we started, we had to take a, a lot of our inspiration from breweries and wineries. Uh, you know, you can't really get cleaner than a brewery. Um, just they have to be sanitary. Uh, so that is part of our um, uh, systems, uh, you know, daily operating procedures here. Everything, you know, everything's immaculate. And, uh, you know, we take great pride in that. And, uh, you know, those are the type of things that really are going to influence the, the end result of the spirit. And, um, you know, prior to going into the barrel, 
then the barrel. Um, so we like to do a lot of the work up front. And I was going to say, it circles back to what you were saying before, but you want to put the best distillate into the barrel before it even touches the wood. Right. Something that tastes really good, that has a profile that will only be enhanced right. over the course of the barreling, not overtaken by the barreling. Right. And barrels can fix a lot of problems, you know. Um, so, you know, we're, um, you know, we, as people sometimes are obsessed with age levels of whiskeys, um, you know, if the distillate going in isn't delicious, what, what are you trying to fix? So, <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. It's well taken. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, these are bottled in bond, and they're they're absolutely delicious, and uh, you know, uh, they absolutely show what we want to show in the expression. They have that um, uh, that sweetness from the uh, the deep rooted winter rye here. You get a little bit of the salinity very subtle mm -hmm. but if you look for it you're going to find it on your palate um and you are going to get that uh those spicy notes that you look for in a rye but they're not they're, they, the spirit doesn't lead with that right i was going to say that i was looking for the salinity in in the first three expressions we've tried the bourbon the weeded bourbon and the rye and it, it's not up front it's more hitting me kind of on the finish the back of the tongue and I would almost equate it to, you know, salt in baking. Yes. You're not necessarily tasting a cookie that and saying it's salty, but having the salt in there and also missing the salt in there, you notice. You know, it's like a teaspoon of salt for a full batch of cookies. You, you notice when that little bit of salt is missing and it elevates it. Also like espresso and chocolate. You know, you don't necessarily taste the coffee, but it bolsters that chocolate flavor. A hundred percent. So with the, uh, with the, rye i think uh and as we're transitioning from the rye into the single malt uh, i wanted to one do a, a shout out which was to monique at winebow who is friend love of, monique yes hey, monique. friend of both of ours <laughs> um and uh, winebow has really been instrumental in in your growth and and hitting a national profile we've been with winebow since 2008 uh we're very proud of our relationship with winebow and um uh we couldn't ask for a better partner um you know monique uh had brought some real firepower to the spirits team when she joined um i think it's been seven years now um you know she's just been amazing and elevating the whole entire um spirits program uh jessica partington shout out to her as well and uh rich driscoll um who really uh has been a very close friend of mine uh since we got started um he's one of the founder well not founder but i think he was the number two employee at winebow so um yeah the the, the winebow i've grown up with i've watched winebow grow and they they're just one of the if i would rate them as the top craft spirits supplier in the country and that holds out and you know i am really thankful for them not necessarily introducing us because we i got to know you from visiting first but for reintroducing us and, and helping to make this happen and the and this is fully charged anyway we're back in now. Uh, it might have a little uh, difference in the sound. I had a technical issue that I've never had before, so we're going to go with it. But still thrilled to still have Rich here. 
And uh, we're moving on now to the American single malt whiskey. So we've got Field and Sound, Bottled and Bond, American single malt whiskey. You're now on batch two. Uh, this is at 50%, obviously Bottled and Bond. Um, that was redundant, my bad. But the, it's such a different, just off the nose, I haven't even tasted it yet, just off the nose, it's, it has a very kind of um, fruity grapiness to it. Right. Almost, like, almost brandy-ish. Yeah, you're picking up um, a, a lot of the, it really reveals, because we, um, what's different here with our single malts, we don't just use um, one type of malted barley. We have a proprietary um, mash bill of several different malted barleys. We use Montreal, we use a couple of other ones that I, I prefer not to mention, but um, it's just a, uh, a very interesting approach to making malted barley rather than, um, I mean, making a, an American single malt rather than uh, using all two-row malted barley and, you know, uh, just distilling it and then putting it in a barrel. This is uh, a true craft beer. Um, you'll get notes of the hops in there. And, um, you know, it, after aging for four years, uh, it just... It's got such a wonderful flavor profile. There are not a lot of uh, bottled and blonde, bottled and bond American single malts out there, and um, we just thought it would be a, an amazing addition to the lineup here. So, here, yes, cheers. cheers. And I should note it evolves a lot too. So on the nose, I was getting more of the fruity flavors on here. On the palate, I would get what I almost would describe as. Um, meaty yeah it, it's it's different but i mean i can see it coming from the beer there's the, the through line from the malt in but it's it tastes like you're at a smokehouse kind of right thing without right, being right. very smoky right 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 yeah. yeah um a little bit of white tea um mm -hmm. just yeah there, there's a lot of uh depth to this spirit um yeah we we just thought this was truly unique yeah it really is excellent so the you said you don't we were not going to reveal the proprietary uh, blend of barleys right. involved, but um, are you still keeping to the ethos of the barley is from the area uh, as much as possible? Uh, as much as possible. So there is some two-row that is available. Um, the closest actually in New York State. It's a little too... Um, uh, to grow good malted barley, you have to be in a climate that's a lot drier than Long Island. It's just too much humidity uh, to grow here. They Cornell uh, Cooperative tried experimenting with four-row barley um, a while back, but nobody really had any success with it. So we do uh, purchase some of the two-row that goes in here from New York State, but, um, um, you know, here um, we, we focus not so much on using grains from here just because they're not available, but using our proprietary blend of uh, You'll even find some, you know, chocolate notes in there from mm -hmm. the barley. Uh, so yeah, there's about five different malted barleys that go into the here. Um, so uh, they're absolutely del delicious, and um, yeah, it, it creates a very unique. The di uh, you know, as I said, you know, the beer is absolutely delicious, and it's so good the distillate coming off the still. So yeah, this is a really fun whiskey. It is. It's reminding me because I, I always try to. 
think of comparisons, especially when I'm describing whiskeys to people, I want them to have a frame of reference. And right. with American Single Malt, because it's still fairly a new category, it's a little bit harder because it's not right. always as close to you. It's like Scotch or Irish Single Malt as we think about. But this has a lot of kind of Mortlock character to it. Um, and that the really the heaviness of the spirit, the depth to it, that meatiness, which is, it's a pretty unique note. Like there are a couple of notes that are like, okay, we find that, you know, you find brown sugar and caramel in right. almost every bourbon. But um, in a single malt, the flavor is different. I'm also getting more of the salinity across in this particular expression. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if you get that too. Yeah. I'm just tasting it now. Yeah. 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 It, it evolved. It, it'll lay out in your palate for a considerable time. It just, it, it's, um, also, it lays out in your glass. I mean, I don't know if you, the legs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, a solid medium legs. They're really, they hang on. They're kind of sloughing off into the legs, but that's, yeah. I mean, they're slow. That means there's a lot of viscosity there. 100%. That's what we're looking for. A lot of viscosity, and you feel it on the palate. It, it comes across as more than just 100 proof in terms of the viscosity, but the heat is very much in check. Yep. Um, obviously, my palate's now a little acclimated after uh, having a few pours, but even so, the this doesn't taste hot at all. It certainly doesn't taste young at all. But you still get some of that malt character, and I think, to your point about distilling it from the beer and you get some of the hops in there, that helps to identify it as a malt right. spirit. So you're hopping it to uh, a certain level. Um, are you still measuring the IBUs that come off of it? We were doing that with the Pine Barrens, uh, this less so. Okay. Yeah. So it's, um, if you know, it's not going to come, the Pine Barrens was a little more upfront with the hop flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a little more subtle, but you still have them. You still have it in the back end. Yeah, it's, it's there and I I love it. There, we've seen a couple of distillers in the U.S. try to make a hopped whiskey, um, and I'm not saying that this is. I wouldn't consider this to be called a hopped whiskey. They're saying it as part of the marketing, right? That it's a hopped whiskey. Um, haven't been so successful right. <laughs> necessarily. A little bit too much hop is not. And I'm someone who likes IPAs a hell of a lot more than stouts mm. and um, such and porter. So I like it bitter when it comes to beer. But for me, this doesn't. You get a little bit of it, just a little bit. Right. And that little bit is just enough to add an extra complexity of flavor without distracting from the malt character. So that's, I mean, that's what I'm getting from it, which I love. There is also something I'm noticing in the glass, which I need to look more into. And that is not every spirit, when you put it into a glass, leaves a residue. But this one does. And the... Only the only kind of major distiller that I think of that has this Brown Foreman barrel proof products leave a residue where others like you know BTAC or Buffalo Trace or Heaven Hill they don't. And it's fascinating to me when they leave a residue because to me that says there's more in the whiskey. And you're you guys have always done probably non chill filtered. Hundred percent right. So I'm just curious why why non chill filter. Well, you remove a lot of the flavors that we're looking for. Um, you know, 
if you're a major distiller and you're looking for consistency across each batch, I mean, we go out of our way to hand mark each batch. We do look for some level of consistency, but we realize, uh, you know, whis whiskey enthusiasts are always looking for, uh, you know, if you're a craft spirit whiskey drinker, you're looking for some unique properties in that spirit. And if you do chill filtering, that's going to pull a lot of the, you know, the fusel oils and esters that uh, are in the distillate out. And we're not looking to do that. Um, we want, uh, you know, that raw, the raw flavor profile that comes from, you know, doing all the upfront work and then, um, you know, allowing that uh, Kelvin char to, to polish the, uh, the spirit give it some notes and um, well, you know why diminish it after it's done, we've done a lot of the work up front and then pull out what we see as quality um, you know to produce just vanilla <laughs> yeah no, you're right I mean the the new American oak is going to produce vanilla buttery coconut yeah and that's not to say that notes are bad but it's also the notes that a lot of people kind of lean into and rely on right. to say that they have a good spirit or when the whiskey is ready but Instead, you're relying more on, okay, are we at a point where, of course, you want to make a bottle and bond, so it has to be at four years old, but beyond that age, you still want it to just be, okay, is the, if the barrel's overtaking the whiskey, it's aged too much right. at that point. So with that, I think that's a good point to ask. So the field and sound range is with, I think, one or two um, exceptions, of course, being the finished because you can't have the finished bottle and bond, but uh, they're all they all start as bottle and bond. So, what would have happened, just hypothetically, what would have happened if you're looking at these spirits, you're tasting them throughout the aging process, and you find, you know, I think they're better at three years than at at four years. Would you have? Um, do you think you still would have gone to bottled and bond eventually, or would you have said, you know, the three years really the the sweet spot? And this is purely hypothetical. Well, one of the things what happened was COVID. <laughs> so in twenty twenty, um, you know, as I said, Field and Sound was launched in twenty twenty one. We didn't sell uh, a lot of whiskey in twenty twenty, so our whiskeys just started aging, and um, you know, we directed all our efforts to make hand sanitizer. Um, you know, we lost a lot of customers in 2020 and 2021. Um, a, lot of, a lot of our barrels to mature a little longer. And um, we discovered um, we really liked what, what, what uh, each one of the expressions had developed into. Uh, and that was kind of the impetus for launching Field and Sound. We always were looking to do um, an elevated brand above Rough Rider. Um, that was really the impetus, COVID, um, and um, it just, uh, you know, we're thrilled at uh, the results. Um, we do still, you know, Rough Rider is, you know, we still produce that. That's a younger whiskey, um, but, um, you know, we, uh, you know, that has its own targeted audience for cocktails and making a killer Manhattan. and. But if you want uh, something neat or on the rock, you know, one giant ice cube and freezing cold day like we got today, uh, you know, to take a little bit of that chill out, uh, you know, these are this is the lineup that is our go-to. 
Understood. And with that, shall we? Yeah. Onto the the uh, finished collection. Sure. So these are whiskeys that also start out. There, they are the bottled and bond series of Field and Sound. They're straight. Yeah. Well, these are so, they can't be bottled and bond right, because they, they're straight bourbon whiskeys. Uh, right. So, but they're at least four years uh, prior to going into um, the finishing casks. So these will. Um, Mature, and then what's very interesting is um, we had produced rum, um, geez, about eight years, a little over eight years ago. Um, we had about 14 barrels of it um, and never did a release on it, our own product. And, um, you know, we had always planned on it, but the, the market really for rum and, you know, it's just, it, it never became one of those things. So we just, did that and it's always just been sitting there and it, it's fun when we take uh, you know uh, customers around and we pull some stuff out from the barrel because the rum is absolutely absolutely delicious but we only got 14 barrels of it so what we decided to do was what would happen if we pull the rum out and do an extra maturation of the bourbon or straight bourbon whiskey in those eight-year-old rum casts and uh, this was this turned out to be what we got so this is bottled at 120 proof, which is essentially cask strength. Mm -hmm. So here we go. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. That's a very different rum character than I'm used to. It's good. It's um, has. I'm trying to decide like what country that would kind of line up with but it doesn't really it's a very unique rye we uh, made the sorry, rum, rum here rum. yeah 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 no so, no no, no yeah. I'm, I'm thinking yeah just for for frame for right comparisons for say. references yeah you know i mean the other thing um you know your listeners may not be aware of that aren't from the area you know long island um we've got very hot uh summers here mm -hmm. and very cold winters so you know ideally suited for barrel aging products and um you know this rum is you know uh, we'll try it a little later, not during the cast, but um, right. it's uh, just a very unique product. It's not a release product, but the rum is just um, absolutely delicious. And you know, who knows? You know, ten years from now, we may just you know do a uh, select version of it. <laughs> yeah, I know plenty of people who would be interested in, including myself, who would be interested in, in grabbing a barrel of that little yeah. bottle. Um, so when you created the rum, as you said, we've got we don't grow. I don't, I don't think a ton of sugar products here on Long Island, but because the summers may be warm, but the winters, as we can see today, are uh, are fairly cold. But what kind of base did you use for the rum and profile were you looking for? So that's a great question. So we're one of the only distilleries that has two distillers licenses, because there was no farm distillery license when we started. So we have a class A1 distillery mm -hmm. license, which allows us to produce anything. And then we also have a farm distiller's license, which is where you have to only use New York State. So uh, for our whiskey range and our vodkas and gins and everything else, that's all New York State. Um, this is 50% pure cane sugar and 50% blackstrap molasses. Um, the reason, one of the reasons why we stopped making rum was it took us like four days to clean the distillery after we made <laughs> the molasses is like just, it sticks to everything. And plus, it's, if you're doing the sweet mash too, you've got. It's a, just it was, 
forget it. Yeah. So it's um, that's one of the main reasons we just stopped doing it. Um, you know, we thought it was a good idea. Oh, we use we use some bourbon barrels. We'll put some rum in it. And, uh, after we uh, made the, f- <laughs> we were just like forget it. I mean, it, it's a fascinating profile. I don't think the bourbon gets lost underneath it, which is always important. Right. But in this case, because the rum profile is is so different, I'm I'm laser focused on the rum profile. Yeah. Um, and the proof too, it's not. It's definitely warmer than the hundred proof. Um, so it's leaning more towards the 120 where it is, but still, it's not. It's not at 120 for me. It's still an easy drinker. Like I can right. see putting this on a on an ice cube or like a big ice cube. Want something that's gonna oh, yeah. melt slowly for it. But where you so you're doing a 50% pure cane juice and the molasses and the molasses for the other black strap. Black strap. Were you? I mean, you've said before, with the with other products, you've done a trial and error process. Was there much trial and error with this, or just the one shot with that? No, we used, uh, I mean, basically, we used our, uh, it was almost like producing vodka. I mean, with rum, you just, uh, you want to accelerate. Um, you know, we t- took tight cuts on our heads and tails, um, but, um, you know, we didn't do, um, it, it wasn't, uh, uh, like a fermentation where you're looking for, you know, producing unique esters or anything else. Uh, basically, um, you know, our delicious rum casks added to the flavor of what the um, rum, I mean, our bourbon casks added to what the flavor of the rum became. Mm-hmm. And then what's kind of cool is it's our bourbon that goes back into mm-hmm. the same rum cask. So, um, you know, it's been a lengthy journey for the whiskey in there. <laughs> Absolutely. And you said you got 14 or so rum casks yes yep um do you plan to well this is a, a so what we do is a um a single barrel to single barrel um swap out okay so those bourbon uh this was a general release for um batch one mm-hmm. um we're doing a barrel program for our re- next release of um field and sound the rum cask and um, um, so it's a barrel-to-barrel transfer. So we transfer the rum into a new bourbon cask, so it'll uh, sit in there, mm-hmm. and then we put the bourbon into that X rum cask. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what we're gonna be using the rum for. Nice, love it. Well, I hope we do get to uh, <clears throat> try the rum on its own, because it's, like, I can't get away from it. My mind is like stuck on it right now. It's like yeah, it's a, cool. It's, it's like a record scratch kind of moment <laughs> happening. Um, it's so different. So, with the as as we're moving on to our, our last pour, which is an about to be released, uh, as, yeah. as of recording at least, about to be released product. Yeah. So weeded bourbon um, that's finished in uh, this, you know, RX. Um, French oak uh, brandy casks. Mm. So the brandy uh, is anywhere from probably similar seven to 10 years old. Uh, as I said, we do a lot of brandy for sparkling points, so we have these casks around. And um, we decided to use them to um, finish a weeded bourbon in the ex brandy casks. And uh, boy, oh boy, this is absolutely delicious. <laughs> so here, cheers. cheers. Final note. Yes. 
Mm. Lovely fruitiness. Again, the bourbon's not lost. It's definitely powering the pour. Yeah. But the brandy, though, coming from... This is a... Sorry. Let's try that again. Is that a, a red grape brandy? No, no, no. Or this is a Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir, yeah. So, 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 like, you know, red, but... but a light red. Yes. At that, for sure. Yeah. So it's actually a 50-50 blend of Pinot Noir and uh, uh, Sparkling Point. So, I mean, oh. um, Chardonnay okay. from Sparkling Point. So, uh, yeah, it's a very light, um, you know. Yeah. It's almost like a rosé. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, if you blend yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> like, it comes across that way, too. It, yeah. it has that, um, it's, it's red. You can tell there's the red so, with, with the berries in there and such, but it's lighter than a normal red would be. So the colors of the labels are also an homage to what they were. So yeah. that's why, um, you know, it almost has a wine color on the bottom strip of the label. Mm. Oh, that is delicious. Yeah. This one, I think, is maybe a little bit closer to the 120. I'm not upset about that at all, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, this feels like, whereas the Rome felt like a really good summer on, right. a, on a cube, this feels like a good winter on a cube. 100%. Um, really good stuff. So as, this is where we've gotten taste through the field and sound lineup. Uh, as we're kind of closing out, I was curious about kind of where you're going with this. So right. you've got kind of two two profiles that I'm thinking about. One side is the, the small local distiller. You, you've got 650-ish barrels in the warehouse right now, which is, is not a ton. But at the same time, you've also got a national distributor who's able to get the product out into the market. So you're, to me, you're, as a consumer, you're kind of positioning yourself as a um, a niche producer with a high quality product rather than high quantity. And you've said yourself, you know, never say never, but for now you want to stay as where you are, you know, with the two 650 liter stills, aging at least the four years for a, at least a bottled and bond product. Right. So what does, uh, you know, the next five years look like as you're reaching this national profile and um, reaching more people? Yeah, what does that next five years look like for you? Yeah, so, you know, this year we're going to lay down a, a, probably about 300 barrels. Um, so we're increasing our production, uh, but really laser focused on quality. We, um, you know, we're, we're not looking to become a mega brand. We're looking to, you know, develop ourselves um, as a, a high-end craft producer that uh, is well-respected for everything that comes out of the distillery. Um, you know, each one of our flavor profiles are very distinctive and, you know, we want to become known for that. Um, in terms of volume, being able to satisfy, you know, national demands, um, you know, sometimes it's okay if, uh, you know, <laughs> you run out. I mean, it's, that, it's just the way it is. And, um, you know, we, uh, you know, we also price these at a price point where they're not, um, you know, out of touch with uh, market demands either. I mean, these, uh, the bottle and bond sit uh, around 50 on the shelf and the cast drawings will be around 75. Mm -hmm. So they're, you know, uh, they're competitively priced. 
you know, I, I'm just taking a long-term approach to, um, you know, building the company and building the business. And, um, you know, I want to stay laser-focused on quality. And, um, you know, it's just always been built into our DNA here. And you're also fortunate in a, in a sense that the whole business is not dependent on the whiskey because Long Island Vodka, Live Vodka is, is selling well. You've got the Sorbetto line, which I personally love, some of the, especially some of the flavors that you've got now, which supplement. And they help bring in when, you know, while the whiskey is aging, just right. as much as it did when you first started, you still need something to help out. Well, one of the big things that was kind of interesting, too, during COVID, we introduced um, the Live Standard Vodka, and we also came out with Live Gin. Um, so Live Gin is actually, I mean, um, it's a you know a fully distilled gin, and those are being well served in cocktail programs throughout the city. I mean, the Smith Group, we are their um, well gin. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Live Gin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Tommy Tardy and Flatiron Room mm-hmm. are gin and vodka, or live standard and live gin. So we are, you know, that will always be uh, kind of the flagship of the company because it's a lot of people know it as live, but um, field and sound, we are well known for. So, you know, this, this is like our graduate degree. We are uh, very proud of these and wear these on the wall, but. Um, like you said, we do need to still, uh, you know, make sure that we're um, uh, have the ability to be in this for the long term and uh, producing, you know, world class vodkas and gins is kind of really helping us, uh, you know, bring it to the next level, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll continue uh, our smart growth with our whiskeys, um, and uh, you know, I, we really appreciate uh, the customer feedback we get on these th- uh, products. Uh, Field and Sound has just been an incredible journey for us. We're so happy with uh, uh, to be partnered with uh, Winebow on these, and um, yeah, appreciate you coming out today. It's, uh, I wish we had some warmer weather for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm someone who likes the cold, so this is perfectly good for me. Excellent. Um, I wanted to end on one question that brought brings us back to the 30,000-foot view of this. So you're established, you're one of the earliest distilleries in New York, you're building into a national audience. You've got the field and sound line that's building out. I'm curious in terms of other uh, distilleries that are growing on Long Island. There are still relatively few, especially compared to uh, what we would call upstate, which as Long Islanders, you know, anything about Westchester is upstate for us. So I'm just curious to know if there's um, any, any desire or movement into kind of becoming a, a leader for Long Island distilleries and a, and pushing for Long Island to be more represented. Yeah, um, you know, the difficulty on Long Island, as you know, mm-hmm. is uh, the cost structure of starting a business out here is quite a bit different than upstate New York. Yep. Um, so that's been a lot of the challenges for a lot of the guys getting started out here. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, continually, uh, you know, work with our, you know, partners throughout the state. But, um, you know, it's a very agricultural driven uh, business. And, you know, it, it's hard. You know, the other thing is um, with COVID, um, unless you have distribution, 
uh, it's very difficult to you know get in and now distribution lines uh, the distributors are not opening up their portfolios as much so uh, it's very hard unless you've been established you know to get distribution um, so that that that's one of the biggest challenges for new distilleries out here on Long Island uh, distribution and um, you know just the cost of doing business hey, it's true it's in the housing market too it's in oh. everything Long Island it's it's like, tough they're not making any more Long Island so it's yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. we've got what we had two, 10,000 years ago yeah, that's, that's right that's all we've got left so with that Rich thank you so much for hosting me here at Long Island Spirits um, if you're visiting Long Island come out here make the trip it's worth it come out to Baiting Hollow it's near uh, Calverton near Islip Airport it's pretty straight drive from the LIE all exit the 71 here. exit 71 just go north from there really easy drive and again it's just it's worth the visit to to really see what they're doing here to taste the spirits and to put Long Island on the map so Rich thank you again thank you so much I really appreciate you coming out and uh, it's been a pleasure same here thank cheers, you so much bud. cheers one more click absolutely cheers cheers hey folks thanks for listening to another episode of the whiskering podcast if you like what you hear please go ahead and click that subscribe follow or like button leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice and let me know what you want to hear you can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderingcom with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyinmywedding That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume under the influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the barrel share club. Each month barrel share club members get to try products sent to me for review bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers, thank for the support, and see you next time.